0: Subscribe and rate it. Five stars and the greatest podcast. Wherever you're listening or watching, remember always keep it squatchy. Yeah. And now your hosts Cliff Berkman and James Bobo Fay. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Bobo is not here today, so you're stuck with just me. Bobo is working on a production right now, as uh, you all know, because we talk about it every week in Southern Oregon. And apparently this week I called him and said I was excited about the guest we had. I said, hey, we have this guy for a certain time and, and he's, he cannot make it today, basically. He is driving across California with a truck full of production gear. Um, delivering it to here and there in the foothills of the Sierras and down to L.A. And the long long story short, he cannot make it today, so you're stuck with just me. And, of course, our, our guest, which we'll get to in just a moment. Um, Around this time of the podcast, I usually ask Bobo what he's been up to and what he's doing. And he's been telling, he he would usually say, Oh, oh, yeah, production stuff. And then I would go back and tell him what's happening at the museum. So I'm going to do that for you now. It has been a very interesting week, a week and a half, actually, here at the North American Bigfoot Center. Um, I was in uh, Kentucky for CryptidCon a week and a half ago, and I got to spend another night out afterwards at a at a farm where the woman who, had, who has lived there for about a, week, a year and a half now has seen Sasquatches apparently three or four times over this last year and with all that stuff that goes with it, you know. Um, you know, finding footprints around and, and sounds outside the house that are unidentifiable. Apparently, one of her uh, uh, calves, one of her young cows, has, was killed by something um, that twisted its neck around, which is very unusual. As you know, as most bigfooters out there would know, that a Sasquatch may or I mean, we don't know if a Sasquatch did it, but th- th- maybe maybe it did. I don't really know. Uh, but so there's all this going on, and I had the opportunity to spend the night out there, and I'll tell you. Up until that point, I think the coldest I've ever been was on the Kansas episode of Finding Bigfoot, but Kentucky took the cake. Kentucky took the ice cream cake. It was so cold. It was astonishing. Um, The the number on our thermometers said 18 degrees Fahrenheit, but of course, it felt infinitely colder than that. Um, But we did find some footprints because uh, the woman, it turned out, saw one on Saturday um, and I was there on Monday and uh, she showed us where it ran. And then I went up the hill um, and I located a, tr- a, a track line. I mean, they, they weren't like big clear tracks or anything like that, but you can definitely see where an animal had been moving through the brush. I'm not a great tracker, but I'm a decent tracker. I'm a hobbyist or so. Um, but I could definitely see where things um, were moving through there. Um, I smelled something very peculiar, of course, which I thought was interesting. Actually, I hadn't smelled that for many, many years. Um And there were several areas where an impression was in the ground, mostly toe scrapes, but all five toes were visible. Um, Tom Shea was out there with me, so I, of course, cast that, and um, due to the weather, I was unable to pull the footprint cast until, well, Tom Shea had to go back later and pull it, because I had a plane to catch, and I couldn't stick around, and the cold, damp conditions um, made the plaster not set up in time. Um, I think the plaster took over three and a half hours to set up, according to Tom, Um, but I only had about an hour or so to wait, so I'm kind of waiting to see what happened with that cast. Tom's going to ship it to me at some point, and then, of course, I get home, and Less than a week later, I go out to check our long-duration recording unit that we have at a place. Um, all of all of my museum members um, at the North American Bigfoot Center would, of course, recognize the name Easter Island. That is a nickname for a place uh, that we've been working for a while. Um, there's another researcher who has been working the same area since the late 90s, and he has cast a number of interesting footprint casts out of the area. Um, so now we're looking at the same area. We found footprints there last uh, February. And, um, and this guy, we, we met a guy, a witness who lives not far from there. And he, he had seen a Sasquatch on his neighbor's property this past uh, January, I believe. And he had seen, um, he had two road crossings over the last several years, uh, just a few miles from his house. So this gentleman has been kind enough to allow us to put a long duration recording unit on the property. The dur- long duration recording unit was donated by uh, the North Kentucky Bigfoot Research Group. Um, they had put these things together, uh, specifically uh, Dusty Ruth. Uh, There's a gentleman who gave it to us, and we're deploying it out there. It can record up to three to four weeks at a time. Um, We schedule the recordings to be 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. every day. And um, poor Connor, um, my uh, Padawan and sidekick here at the North American Bigfoot Center, has to go through all the recordings when I bring it back to him. Um, So we went out there to change out the batteries and change out the SD cards. Um, And then on a whim, um, Keith a uh, friend of mine, and I decided to go out to the area of Easter Island and just go walk some roads just to see what's going on, see where the snow line is, see if there's any traffic out there, that kind of thing. And we stumbled across the footprint. Got very, very lucky. Uh, it doesn't happen every day. It doesn't even happen every month. It happens maybe two or three times a year at the most, at the very most, if you're really doing well. And we stumbled across a footprint in the ground. Four out of five uh, toes were visible. No one knew we were going there. We didn't know we were going to be there. Um, there was uh, only one print because of ATV traffic. Apparently, I think the ATVs uh, decimated the other stuff that was probably in the ruts of the road. Um, we cast the print. It is now drying downstairs. Well, curing downstairs. It's already dry, but it takes about a week or two for all the for the plaster to really cure and set up. So it's curing downstairs at the NABC. So if you happen to come by the shop, ask Connor or me or whoever's working, Nico perhaps. Um, ask us and we'll be happy to show you what we have and what we found. Um, question is now, is it the same individual that uh, Connor and Keith found last February, just a few hundred yards down the very same road? Um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We don't know yet. But that's what's been going on with the North American Bigfoot Center the last couple of weeks um, since last time we did a podcast. Um, and with that, I think we should jump into the guests because I want to give our guests as much time as possible I am very excited to have a conversation with this gentleman. Um, I've, I I first picked up on this gentleman on Twitter. He has a very active Twitter account where he, uh, um, he he's really interested in dinosaurs. His name is Darren Nash. He's from the UK. He's a science writer and basically a paleozoologist. So, Anything extinct. Um, If if you would read his blog, he has a fantastic blog at at tetzoo.com. It's basically a tetrapod zoology blog, and he also has a podcast associated with it that he does with a guy named John Conway. Now, tetrapod is a fancy pants word, of course. It means anything on four legs. But I don't know. It seems like uh, Darren might be fencing himself in a bit because I know he's into um, you know fish. I know he's into uh, you know uh, cetaceans and that sort of thing. You know, whales and dolphins, which you know could be considered tetrapods in the fossil record, of course, uh, based on where they came from. But um, anyway, I want to give Darren as much time as possible. And Darren Darren Nash, he's written a, a, a very skeptical uh, cr- and critical, and I say critical, I mean critical thinking book about cryptozoology. Because being a scientist, of course, he's interested in cryptozoology because new species are discovered all the time. Of course, that uh, cryptozoology is an important component. But at the same time, being a legit scientist with a PhD um, and and a a well-known scientist at that, he's obviously and rightfully so very critical of what he sees out there in the cryptozoological community. And that's why I wanted to invite him on. He does fantastic essays that he publishes on Twitter and also his blog on things like sea monsters and Patterson gimlin film. I thought that thread was amazing. Um, and so anyway, enough of me blabbing. Let's listen to the, the man of the hour here, Darren Nash. Darren, thank you so much for willing being willing to come on Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. for an intro. Um, yeah, bitterly disappointed that Bobo's not with us today, but uh, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, I'm sure you're
0: not the only one who's bitterly disappointed.
1: You know? <laughs> I'll get over it. Yeah, see,
0: I'm just bitter. Not, you know, so it's one of those things. <laughs> so, so, Darren, I mean, I didn't say anything incorrect in my intro, right? Or anything you want to correct that I said?
1: You didn't say anything incorrect. Um, the tetrapod thing, I mean, technically yeah, you're absolutely right tetrapods tetrapod means four with four feet but uh, uh tetrapoda is what we call a clade that is it's a group of living things where everything comes from the single a single ancestor so around about 400 and something million years ago a fish with weird limbs crawled out of the water and gave rise to the tetrapods so tetrapods are all the amphibians reptiles birds and mammals but of course The whole theme of evolution is things, you know, tinkering, modifying bits over time, of course. And so you can still be a tetrapod. You can still be in that group and have less than four limbs. So whales and snakes and any other, uh, you know, weird amphibians, reptiles, you know, mammals you can think of that don't have four limbs are still tetrapods. They're still in that group, tetrapoda, even though they're not, air quotes, tetrapods, even though they're not four-footed animals. So that's the thing I, I, I find myself explaining um, hmm. you know, again and again. But uh, yeah, it's a interesting um, thing. Well, I think that's an important thing to explain to at least to our audience, because you know, we do have legitimate scientists
0: who listen to this. I, I get emails from them occasionally, PhDs and masters and, and, you know, regular people with, you know, biological degrees, you know, like uh, you know, uh, um, bachelor's degrees and bachelor's of science degrees and things like that. But um, the vast majority of our audience um, are perhaps science enthusiasts with no real technical background, so I think any sort of clarification you can offer along those lines would always be helpful with anything that we talk about in the next hour or so,
1: yeah, yeah, I think that it's really obvious from uh, anything written well nearly everything written within the the cryptozoological canon you know the the majority of people uh, are at least very, very interested in. Uh, science and, uh, you know, keep up to date with things and see their own research, their own findings, their own ideas within a scientific context. I mean, I think, you know, you guys are a great example of this. I think it's it's becoming increasingly well known that people that collect data pertaining to cryptozoological subjects, you, you don't have to be qualified you don't have to have you know spent years at university you don't have to have written a thesis if you are collecting data and then recording the data and talking about you know formulating hypotheses explanations for the data you are indulging in science you you can call yourself a citizen science you don't even have to use the term citizen science i mean you are doing science if you are collecting data and analyzing it um One important thing in cryptozoology, though, is we have so many people collecting data, but they're not exactly knowing how to publish it. And uh, I think we're in a really interesting time at the moment where um, due to the, you know, the rise of new technologies that you can apply to, I mean, you know, one of your favorite subjects obviously would be things like, uh, you know, alleged Sasquatch footprints. Everyone's collecting these measurements and these location, uh, you know, points of points of data what do we actually do with that data we we mustn't just leave it sort of sat in people's files uh, it's it's got to somehow be you know out there and available and uh, um i mean there's so many different tangents to this conversation i mean you know if, for a start you know just use just the existence of the internet and the fact we've now got a, uh, a connected community that can share data is well it just makes things fundamentally different from uh, how things were just a couple of decades ago. Let me say one more thing before I stop, and that is that, um, yeah, the the overlap between um, anything cryptozoological and the kind of serious air quotes mainstream scientific world, the, the overlap is extensive. So I'm a qualified working scientist. I publish technical research, um, but I spend a lot of my time thinking about, you know, air quotes monsters, you know, cryptids a lot of time um wondering what what we should actually do with this with all this information that exists um like a lot of people you know i got interested in the field because i was always enthralled by the idea that that um you know are there real animals at the bottom of these of these mysteries uh, whether that's true or not whether it's you know more kind of a socio-cultural thing than a real flesh and blood thing i kind of think i don't want to say it doesn't matter but it's like whatever the answer to the phenomenon is, there is something worthy of study. And I find that to be increasingly well understood, increasingly appreciated. And I do feel that wherever wherever people fall on the spectrum in terms of you know the most skeptical to the most accept- accepting you know even the people that are on the far skeptical side of things they are paying attention they are listening at least they might not be interacting and you might not know they're there but they are listening to what is being said about bigfoot about lake monsters about sea monsters about mothman whatever because there are phenomena here that are worthy of study don't ever think that the scientific skeptical people aren't Paying attention to this stuff, I know. I know. I'm preaching to the choir, as it were, but um, I always think this is this is worth bigging up. You know. Oh no,
0: we have we have an, a congregation here that needs to hear this sort of thing. And on on one hand, I've, I'm I'm I've, I'm 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 happy that uh, the that the people you're speaking about, these skeptics and the scientists, are listening to the conversations. But yet, on the other hand, I'm horrified of what at, at what they're hearing. Um, well, no, I'm, 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 I'm becoming, I'm quickly becoming the curmudgeon of the Bigfoot community where I'm, you know, scolding the audience at conferences for not doing a good enough job. And then partly myself, because, you know, we all only see ourselves out in the world. And I, I know that I'm not doing a good enough job and I have so much to learn and I need to do better. And then I look around and say, Oh my God, I'm doing better than these people though. Oh my God, everybody needs help somehow, you know? And, and, um, so, so along those lines. Oh, and be, be, before I ask the question, uh, um, and uh, you, you hit on something else, I want to briefly touch upon is like I'm astonished in a way that. Um, that, that more scientists aren't looking into what's happening, and and now mind you, of course, you you know about me enough to know that I think that Sasquatches are a flesh and blood hom- hominoid of some sort, you know? I, I think they're just a perfectly normal animal walking around, they're just very rare, etc. But even, even if the anthropologists aren't interested in this, where are the sociologists? Where are the psychiatrists, you know? Like where are these people, and why aren't they looking at what's happening in the Bigfoot community, whether or not Sasquatches Squatches are real animals or not? Certainly, there's some really interesting sociological things happening here, um, and certainly, um, if if we're all just wrong, and, and, and I mean, th- this shouldn't this draw the attention of people who are interested in mental illness or something like that? Certainly, there's enough here for some, for for reams of uh, scientific journal articles to be written. I've, it's always been astonishing to me that they're not paying more close attention than they are. But um, the back to my original point. We all have so far to go in the Bigfoot community because, you know, I don't have a science degree. I have a degree in music of all things. I just love science. And I recognized a long time ago that just like astronomy, um, the professionals are busy doing stuff. So the amateurs make a lot of significant discoveries. And I I see Sasquatch as being an arm of anthropology where the enthusiasts, the amateurs uh, like me, can make significant contributions, at least until the academics get involved people like myself who are collecting data, who are collecting footprints, who are collecting sighting reports and whatever else, I know what I'm doing with it. Um, I'm trying to find patterns and trying to learn about how Sasquatches live and that sort of where do they go and why and trying to piece together that kind of puzzle. But what can you recommend that we can, that we should be doing or doing better as a community of enthusiasts around the subject?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot to uh, to. I always struggle with these complicated subjects to know exactly where to where to plant the flag and to start you know start the conversation. Um, I think so. Maybe taking this back a little bit to something you said uh, you know, um, just a moment ago. The um, I think that the field, okay, bigfoot specifically, cryptozoology more broadly, definitely is stigmatized, and that is that's the main reason why there aren't more people like seriously investigating it i get asked all the time as someone who's known to to have an interest in this field is like is is it pseudoscience is it isn't it isn't it just a waste of time i'm like well you just can't make a broad brush yes or no answer on that kind of question because if you again think of you know, are scientists interested in the question of Bigfoot? That's a that's a question where the the answer there is every conceivable shade of grey, as you know, you know from your friends and associates. It's on the one hand, you've got fully qualified. Uh, people who, you know, Jeff Meldrum a good example of some, uh, of someone who has his credentials in, you know, technical primatology, you know, functional morphology, paleontology, uh, you know, he, he, someone who's got an established, you know, firm track record and then has kind of gone on to like start publishing on Bigfoot. You've got from that all the way up to people that are, yeah, like interested in it as a, as a sociocultural phenomenon, um, and then you and then of course you have got people who reject it outright i would say the general feeling in science and this is going to sound you know like unfair totally and it's not coming from me but it is going to sound unfair the general feeling from you know the sort of consensus opinion that's built in uh, that's built up within science is that uh, it's not worthy of study because the only people that are doing it are you know sort of kidding themselves or uh, you know dealing with like known Uh, nonsense you know faked evidence or whatever that is not me saying that i'm saying that's the kind of consensus so the bottom line there is what compelling evidence is there that would that would convince skeptical scientists to say no this isn't uh you know something that that can be can be ignored because at the moment the the evidence that is put forward in published literature on bigfoot you know the pg film uh farenbach's uh, data on um, you know uh for uh, dis- statistical stuff statistical right? stuff yeah uh, claims of um hares i mean obviously you know the uh, the um oh, i've forgotten her name the um the, the study on uh, alleged uh sasquatch genome oh um, that well we can yeah. we can put that to bed we had well a, um, yeah you know that i know that but yeah. that didn't do the field any favors because of course no. that got that got a huge amount of um it's like wow is this is this for real is this is it true have they fought you know holy grail have they finally is bigfoot finally going to come in from the cold and then it's like no it turned out to be you know a, a a pretty embarrassing study with with some significant flaws. So, you're st- what I am getting at there is you are still kind of at stage one in terms of actually convincing skeptical scientists that is there a thing that's worthy of of study here. I think that is still the big problem. That, like, as as I, I totally get that that's frustrating. I totally get that is not consistent with the body of evidence that does actually exist. But that is still the the, the case we're at. We don't have this absolutely compelling, you know, like set of I don't know, something something like something skeletal or, you know, like a bit of a dead body or a compelling DNA profile or something like that. So you, you've yeah. still got that. And, and um, to latch on to something else I mentioned in passing, the, um, the, the field being kind of, you know, spoilt for many scientists is... Now, of course, I think the biggest problem we have in cryptozoology in general today is specifically relevant to Bigfoot more than anything else is the woo. It really is the woo. Oh, I mean, yeah. like I know exactly what your position is, um, but I, I'm I'm fairly familiar with you know the general thinking in sort of you know Bigfoot research today. There's various other famous sasquatch themed podcasts i listen to i know like what other people are saying about bigfoot you know including some 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 very well-known you know names in in the community they are specifically saying stuff that takes it outside of science Latch attaches it to things to do with well well it's it's to to use the politest term possible is pseudoscience you're talking about an attachment to like mythological ideas about you know um whether it's an interdimensional entity, whether it has a link with orbs, uh, whether yeah, it's yeah. connected to you know, all, all that's that why all I'm stuff. horrified that qualified people are listening. <laughs> by the way, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so that that is a problem, and I don't know how we're going to get around that because that isn't going away. If anything, that is probably becoming, you know, a big a bigger you know, a bigger view in, in the field, if anything, for whatever reason that is, I kind of think that that's actually built out of frustration. I think that, um, the thing I've been telling people is I, I totally get for real, like, despite all the things i've I've written which are skeptical towards bigfoot i still do absolutely accept that people have have had experiences and in cases they've had absolutely terrifying life changing experiences i'm i'm fully on board with that i fully understand that and i think that if you try and marry that with the fact that there isn't the physical evidence that supports the existence of a a giant predatory north american hominin which you know has all the amazing uh, traits that our modern view of Bigfoot Sasquatch is, you know, like associated with, well then what, how do you deal with that? I mean, I think that's why some people have gone down the like Ron Moore head route and said it's some shape shifting, you know, quantum entity, whatever that means. It doesn't really mean anything, but um, so long as you've got that, you are going to have a problem. And then finally, what you, you raised an excellent point. Why then don't we have sociologists, cultural anthropologists, psychologists, like paying more attention to this and, I don't really know the answer to that because that's the sort of direction I've been pushing it in. It's like even if this isn't pure zoology, even if it isn't, you know, primatology, zoology, you know, whatever, then surely this is something worthy of psychological analysis or socio-cultural analysis. It's a fascinating phenomenon, and there basically don't seem to be enough people qualified in that area to start looking at this phenomenon and i think they did start doing that in like the 70s and 80s you know there's that book man like monsters on trial where mm-hmm. you know quite a few of the papers in that are you know hedging are sort of leaning in that direction people did think wow this is uh, i i do think that they tend to the people that have tackled that tend to take it in a fairly Uh, sort of unsympathetic direction i mean you know these cases where uh psychologists go to a bigfoot conference and they basically tell bigfoot researchers they're all suffering from some kind of psychopathy or some i like i don't think that's helpful you're not going to get many people on board saying that are you but um i i kind of think it started then and it didn't really go anywhere and quite why that is I, I kind of get the impression that there might be like renewed interest in it, but the main thing just seems to be that there aren't enough people that are actually studying that to really go somewhere with it. But I absolutely fully agree with you. it's like this is a rich field, whichever way it goes.
0: Stay tuned for more. Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. The woo thing and uh, giving Sasquatches um, these non-physical attributes and abilities, um, in a way, I've often thought, well, that's mental illness or maybe people had weird experiences because, you know, the universe is in a tremendously weird place and there's – just Bigfoot isn't that weird, it seems. Uh, but uh, my friend um, and one of the best researchers I've ever met, a guy named Matt Pruitt, uh, is writing a book right now. And he's been doing research. Uh, he, of course, he thinks Sasquatches are physical animals and whatever else. But he's been doing research on what he calls phenomenology, mm-hmm. um, about how cultures who live in areas where large, charismatic animals live always Attribute those large charismatic animals with these sort of supernatural abilities, like tigers can turn invisible or shape shift, or brown bears have this ability or that ability, and even tiger sharks, you know, amongst uh, the people of the South Pacific, they're attributed like a spiritual sort of um, uh, well, I'll say abilities again. So in a way, it would be strange if Sasquatches, if they were real animals, which of course I think is true, if that wasn't true of Sasquatches as well. Um, the only difference is that nowadays, it, it's the modern cultures as opposed to the the, the preliterate cultures, if we want to put a word on it. That's um, the modern cultures falling um, under the same the same spell, for lack of a better term. Because uh, uh, we're all humans. We're all the same species. It, it's, there, there's something psychological, I think, going on there. It would be strange if we didn't do that as a culture, or at least some parts of our culture
1: what i've been telling people when asked about this um recently is i i, I basically you know I, i'm always going to repeat what you what you've said but I, I i do agree um i think that if you have an experience um that seems to relate to bigfoot then this is if this animal is real If people have seen something that, you know, conforms to, you know, what we think Bigfoot is like, then this animal is off the charts. This is like, you know, bears and tigers, Komodo dragons and crocodiles are all great. But Bigfoot is like, this is going to be one of the most (laughs) profoundly ridiculous animals um, alive today in terms of its, uh, you know, uh, prowess and abilities, running speed, you know, how dangerous it it potentially is.
0: Really? Um, I don't
1: think they do anything that other animals can't do better. I think I think if you've got all that stuff jumbled into one animal in terms of its size, strength, intelligence, running speed, um, I mean the 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 modern view I think the identikit view of Bigfoot that we've kind of compiled, you know, I mean I I do think this would have to be one of the most one of the most remarkable creatures there is. I, I can't I agree with you I, because because I I get totally that all the things that are ascribed to Sasquatch. I mean this is what Bindenagel made you know obvious in all of his books that. Basically, everything described for it has been reported in, you know, known great apes. I think I think that's a really uh, compelling piece of support for the reality. Uh, of bigfoot but the fact that you've got all these things in a creature that's remained so so cryptic um wh- where i'm going with this is if you accept that view of bigfoot that that the community kind of like sort of has and combine that with the fact that people haven't been able to confirm it as a real flesh and blood animal to the to the you know satisfaction of as, as i've said you know the satisfaction of the majority of you know Um, scientists and the majority of, of, you know, people, I mean, let's face it, you know, Bigfoot Mm -hmm. still isn't like a culturally widespread sort of accepted thing, then I think that has encouraged the lean towards um, the the woo. um, Yeah, uh, I would agree. You know a lot of these people that
0: you're referring to with the woo, and I think Ron Moorhead might be one of them. And Ron's a friend; I, I, I love and adore Ron. I don't agree with him on Sasquatch, and we talk about that when I'm with him. Um, Tom Powell would be another one, for example. And all these people started out in, in what they call the flesh and blood path, and then later ended up. Elsewhere, under the woo guys, um, or weird where things happen, and there's lights and, and telepathic, whatever, whatever all that kind of stuff. Um, with, uh, I, I think some of it might be born out of frustration and kind of like, well, I would have figured something out by now. I've been doing this for so long, but I, I think that's. Um, and, and I'm not faulting any individual, Tom or Ron or anybody else with this. I think as it's a, it's a human characteristic, to to number one underestimate them and and what their strength and habits essentially um, amount to, Um, and also kind of overestimating our own species and what we're able to do. Because I I live in the woods of Oregon, of course, and I look out my window and um, there's four or five, six people who live in my valley where I live, kind of a secluded homestead there. And I just look at the valley walls and think all that is totally, completely unoccupied. And if, what if they, that's where they choose to spend the time because if they are apes at the end of the day, cause we're apes and no matter where they are on the hominin or hominoid, you know, gradient, that's them. They like that stuff. Um, mm. yeah. So I think a lot of it, a lot of that woo stuff is born out of frustration of, I think I should have gotten more by now. Therefore yeah. there must be something else going on that I can't explain.
1: I I really like your point as well that um that this it's it's almost as if uh, you you've heard the argument I'm sure that um when when people talk about um you know religious belief they always say that um the the idea of there being like large creators, you know, godlike characters, that's kind of like hypothesis one. It's sort of inevitable that people would have started with a belief like that. And I think you could say, and and I'm not talking about religion now. I mean, that's, that's another, that's another issue, but uh, you could say the same. Well, we can say exactly the same for big spectacular animals that, uh, yeah, even when we know they're real, absolutely. They are imbued with all these, you know, almost supernatural qualities. So, it's that famous book, the the great the great soul of Siberia, that talks about a uh, Siberian tigers, and um, they're they're um, given all these like remarkable sort of supernatural abilities. It's like, wait a minute, this is a known animal. That's like, there's no. I'm pretty sure we can say that Siberian tigers aren't shapeshifters and don't practice telepathy, so far as we know scientifically. And yet, you <laughs> and yet you have a really similar set of, uh, you know, claims pertaining to them as you as you do for. for, for Bigfoot. So yeah, when I was
0: in Sumatra looking for the orang pendek, um, one of the things we got to do is we got to meet up with a tiger shaman, um, who talked about tigers shape shifting into humans and back and forth and how they can turn invisible. And I, I got to see it firsthand and hear it directly through an interpreter from the shaman himself about all these supernatural abilities that the local Sumatran tigers apparently have that, you know, I'm sure that no zoologists on the planet would be happy to, you know, confer, you know, to do agree with. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so these things are out there. And even in modern days, uh, people still believe these sort of things. Um, yeah, people believe that, 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 oh, I saw some birds fly overhead. That must be my my grandma's spirit checking on me. And we, we, we are still such a, I, don't, I think that we as a, as a species we look at ourselves or at least a, you know modern you know first world industrial species like we you know in america the uk and stuff we look at ourselves and we think that we're so far removed from that kind of uh, thought process or ideals and we're we're simply not uh, the, i don't know what it is about us i mean it's, it's genetic maybe it's i have no idea uh, some cultural phenomenon but we are still there we are still living in this weird shadowy World, whether we all think that or not about ourselves, so it makes sense that these people um, choose to believe the um, paranormal aspects of sasquatches. Um, I just wonder, like once once sasquatches are proven academically to be real animals, which I think is an inevitability at this point. Um, uh, what what will they all be saying then? I, I often wonder that. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to think about egg on one's face or anything like that. And maybe maybe I'm the one that'll have egg on my face. And maybe they do turn invisible and go in other dimensions, whatever that means. I just you know, I'm, I'm I'd be happy to uh, lick the egg off of my face if that were the case. I just don't <laughs> think it's true. <laughs> uh,
1: I often I I, I do often um, think about this. What what would we what w- what would it be like if if one of the great classic cryptids uh was uh, was confirmed and i mean i think the you know the list of cryptozoological superstars so according to bernard hooverman's published a list in 1986 and it's like 140 creatures you look at it today and it's like no no way there's no way these are actually real you know things that we actually they're not targets for cryptozoology today they the evidence for them belief in them has mostly fallen away but um for creatures like uh sasquatch it, it kind of hasn't you know that sort of the idea they might one day be demonstrated to be real is you know on the cards and if it happens what what will we say well i think it's um really interesting that um a huge percentage of uh the classic cryptids are hominids they are human-like apes of some kind. Now, on the one hand, um, you know, do, does this does this link to like? I, I do think this for me. This is quite important in terms of like the skeptical view of these of this subject because the thing that this, this links to back to what we were just saying about um, you know people's uh, belief in you know like a, a mystical spiritual dimension to the natural world is. Uh, for, for me, one of the biggest problems about um, belief in not just not just Bigfoot, but, you know, you go through the list of crypto hominids uh, throughout the world is they're literally seen everywhere. They are seen literally every every place. I mean, uh, as, as you know, even like here in the UK and, you know, Western Europe and so on. people have claimed sightings of Bigfoot type creatures. I think that that's partly because people do require there to be a creature an imaginary creature that bridges the gap between us and the rest of nature. I think that's kind of an unshakable part of the human condition. And I, I think that not necessarily in the case of Bigfoot, because I think Bigfoot's actually like one of the better supported, but for a lot of them, it really does kind of make it, um, you know, shaky, Com- combine it with the fact that, that people are, you know, automatically see the human shape. You know, would
0: that make it some something like a jungian archetype or what is some sort of cultural memory or what 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 is what's behind that you think
1: mm, uh, yeah i think i think it's something simpler than that i think it's the fact that we are just programmed to look for well i think it's actually two things number 1 we are programmed to look for the human shape so if you see a tree in the darkness and it's at the right size and shape, you might think it's a person, just because we're always, you know, we're programmed to see other people. Like you a know, pareidolia people. sort of thing, it's, it's, right? it's totally pareidolia, that's right. And then the second thing is this kind of cultural need, which could be driven by the fact that, yeah, by na- by the, f- the very virtue of the fact that we're human, we see ourselves as distant, not distant, we, are, we see ourselves as distinct from, as different from the rest of nature. Like, even i mean obviously you know the whole idea our, our whole ideas about you know exactly where we fit within the tree of life is a is a is a new thing people have so far as we know you know we have always regarded ourselves as somehow different from the other animals given that fact then we also know and when I say we you know I'm, I'm talking about us in our ancestral state you know how we used to live um we we know that we are part of nature we have a connection with nature we do all the things that all the other animals do and we need to eat and we need to hunt other animals and you know we need to drink from streams and and whatever but why why is there this difference between us and, and, and nature I mean it's quite common for indigenous peoples to have Uh, an idea about you know like other primates being our brothers or cousins but i think even even the the most human-like non-humans are not sufficiently human-like to properly fill that gap so i think people have been inclined to imagine that there are people just like us but they're hairier and they do live in the woods i think that that mythical view is is all over the place and in some ways that does weaken the support for the existence of these creatures you know if, if someone in you know anywhere in the world literally anywhere in the world let's let's just randomly say ecuador if they're in ecuador and they say i saw a hairy person it was just like you but it was covered in red hair and it lived in the forest they might already have that idea without them actually seeing uh you know a, a red-haired furry pe- person that really did live in the woods so i, I kind of think we've always got that to deal with that's just an, that's just the consequence of um, of the human condition, that, yeah, and that seeing it,
0: ourselves everywhere. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, and because yeah, the the if people claim to see bigfoot or bigfoot type creatures in England, Scotland, Wales, you know, uh, Poland, uh, Sweden, uh, Spain, <laughs> uh, Antarctica, um, Hawaii, all of which they have, then I don't think that strengthens the the the. The support for the existence of those creatures, I, I do think. I do think it, it weakens it. We've, that yeah. was a bit, yeah. That was a, a but but the, the complication. You know, there's. <laughs> I said I would struggle to know where to go with this. It's like I, I think that's in place. I think that is a thing, but I don't think that that derails the fact that there might still be such creatures. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of these places that you're mentioning, I think that the the
0: uh, people do see, we see ourselves everywhere. I mean, I hear every day if somebody's in the shop telling me something about themselves, but uh, accusing somebody else of it, you know, like that sort of thing. It's projection, it's pareidolia, it's seeing, living in a room full of mirrors, right? Um, but I think a lot of these places where people are seeing or claim to see these things, the UK is a good example, or Hawaii is a fantastic example with the Minahuni. Um, I don't think Minahuni are real biological animals. Um, uh, I think that it's a cultural echo of the first and second migration of people who came to Hawaii. Um, The first people who uh, discovered Hawaii um, they were of a smaller stature. They're more Indonesian um, in their in their genetics. And then later on, the larger um, I, I don't like the larger like South Pacificers, like a, you know the more Samoan type, the larger people. Um, they showed up later, and there were all these small people living there. And Minahuni, when you translate it, actually is, is a small person, but it also could be translated into a person of lesser social stature. And I think eventually they were either um, they, in, in, p- those two groups of people interbred or the larger of the two from what i was told when i was in hawaii looking into this um they ate the smaller people. <laughs> so um, the, the whole Minahuni thing might be some sort of strange cultural echo through the last 1,200 years or so since it's happened um, of that. And I've often, and the UK, it was an open question. As you know, We the, the find, or maybe you don't know, the Finding Bigfoot show went to the UK. Um, and I said, well, there's no Bigfoots in the UK. So well, these people say there are? I said, all right, let's go to, let's, you foot the bill, we'll go to the UK. Um, and and again, I think that might be some sort of, again, cultural echo from mainland Europe of, of not that long ago when things like Neanderthals or Denisovans or some other hominin group was still walking around coexisting with us, you know, because there are those uh, cathedrals and whatnot with depictions of hairy people. But I, what I found from historians when I was there, and I don't know everything. In fact, I know very little, and I take some sort of a solace in that. Um, the whole hairy man mythos came over and came over to the UK during the Normandy invasion, um, so it kind of came with the culture at that time. Um, so again, I think that some of these things may be cultural echoes um, going back quite far in our in our sort of cultural memory um of other, and here's here's our next topic of conversation here, relict hominoids hmm. that we uh, coexisted with over a period of time
1: yeah before but, yeah I, I i do know the episode I, I i probably have watched too many episodes of your tv show but, <laughs> but don't don't hold it against me <laughs> the, um, yeah so the the, the wood Wozer um argument and i'm uh, unfortunately quite familiar with andy mcgrath's um <laughs> writings ah. i do mm-hmm. not agree with anything he says but um nice uh, no, guy just, though no, no yeah. disrespect to Andy. he's a very nice guy but You've what you've just done. I don't mean to be rude in any way, but you, you've just uh, done the the rationalisation that's very common in cryptozoology. So it's it's common for us to you know hear about a a thing, uh, a particular entity, think, well, that kind of makes sense. You know, maybe it's as you've said. You know, maybe it's a cultural echo. Maybe it's a reference to something that we know from the fossil record or something and and you know you, you I think you have to be very skeptical about that like turn it around it's like well it could be but it also could totally not be so for all the places uh where for example uh you know you were talking about the minahuni of hawaii for all the places where people talk about you know people of small stature there's a hundred other places where we have no reason to think that there was any, you know, th- there's no way there could be any anthropological or biological basis uh, to this. Um, well, I, 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 that's a broad statement in itself, and I, I feel ashamed for saying it. But, you know, there's we must be careful that we don't necessarily... It's the, the commonest complaint from um, cultural anthropologists and sociologists about cryptozoology is that cryptozoologists have have heard about legends and have had have immediately rationalized them as flesh and blood creatures and it, that denies our our ability present across the whole of our species to just invent stuff we there's no doubt that people have invented stuff so for every one mystery creature that sounds absolutely plausible it's like yeah i can believe that, that was a relict, you know dwarf population of you know uh, a homo florescientis or, or whatever for every one argument like that there's like for every one entity like that rather there's another 10 where it's like that does not link to anything people, people yeah could both up. be true though it, they could they totally could it's what makes this so fun it's like yeah yeah i just i'm just wary about us going down the track of thinking that sounds reasonable and the a, 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 another very common thing in in cryptozoological writings is people basically picking evidence in order to you know support pet hypotheses. So um, I'm not going to say any more on that because I'm worried I'll just talk for too long about it. But basically, you know, people have bolstered specific hypotheses, and then you know have come up with a particular idea. I think that all the sea monster sightings of the north. East Pacific pertain to this kind of creature. And then you hear any report from the same area, you, you know, compile it, you, you, you include it in that category. Whereas if you actually look at them in detail, it's like there's no reason to connect those at all. That's people seeing all kinds of different, uh, you know, People, people um, having all kinds of different, you know, encounters with all kinds of different things, and then later on, authors have compiled them together. And I do think we probably are guilty of that in all of these cases. If you go through like all of the orang Pendex sightings, you know, for example, they don't all describe the same kind of creature. That people are talking about all kinds of sort of small human type creatures, small hominid type animals. They aren't always describing the same thing that you would hope you you would hear if they really were describing an unknown, you know, species. I just think we have to keep that kind of stuff in mind and we often don't.
0: No, uh, as far as descriptions go of the orang pin deck or anything else really, would it be fair um, to look at them and and, and just assume that they're going to be outliers in any set of data? And uh, kind of take the bell curve approach. If the majority of the descriptions match, do you think that that is any sort of foundation that we can move forward from, or it,
1: do they all need to be consistent? If you so, so this is a question of sample size. And if you had so to get a bell curve. Like I'm no statistician, but how many how many good sightings would you need? I would. Say, you're supposed to need like a minimum fifty, sixty. And when we talk about cryptid cases, I mean, again, Bigfoot is an outlier because there are so many. But for most of these, the actual good sightings are are very, very, very low. And um, yeah, I, I don't know that we have enough to really. Uh, there is there is also, of course, the tendency to assume that when people describe something and and another tangent and just to touch on this is of course it's often us westerner type people talking to people from totally different cultures where you know every even the way that you describe things and how you you know even the basic most basic descriptive terms are often being used in a different way um we are often kind of like picking and choosing the things that we think match with our kind of expectation but uh I forget where I was going with that. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think that's an,
0: that's a really valid, as a very important point, though, because culture is, is 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 in a way, it's kind of like a set of clothing you put on, but in another way, it's the kind of water a fish is swimming in. You know, and you're the fish. You just don't even see it. It, it literally dictates everything about you: your expectations, how you act, how you think, how you speak, how you interpret the world around you. Um, and I don't think a lot of people um, take any time to kind of med. To think about what culture is and how that affects one's interpretation of existence and reality in general. So, when you, And I, I try to keep that in mind because we get a lot of indigenous people, a lot of Native Americans going through the museum uh, from Warm Springs or whatever other local reservations that they're traveling to or from. And, um, and when I speak to these people, I'm, I'm always very interested in, in their worldview and their perception of things as well. And I realize that if, if I hear something that sounds starkly different than my own, I'd love that because it's a real reminder of my own biases and my own interpretations and the water in which i am swimming in so to speak um and when we talk to other people of other cultures when i went to sumatra for example um not only is there a language barrier from the very real sense between indonesian and english but there's also this other barrier and other filter in between their experience and my own that one has to get through and um and to bring that back home, when we speak to witnesses um, as a as a research community, if we want to call it that, when we speak to witnesses, there are so many biases and filters between what they observed and what I interpret. Um, how good an observer are they? Are? What, what kind of culture do they come from? Are they going to frame this in like a Judeo-Christian context where they're looking at Nephilim or something? Or, 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 and how good of, uh, of a, um, a communicator are they? And, and then it comes to my side. How well am I listening? What am I paying attention to? Am I distracted at the time? And all those other filters apply to me as well. Um, there's so many things between the actual observation and what the researcher like myself would take in, a lot of those are cultural, a lot of those are abilities, a lot of observational abilities, um, and, and so on. So I, I really like that point, because that's something that a lot of observers, I'm sorry, a lot of uh, researchers fail to recognize, um, that you're only hearing words, you're not actually seeing the animal. Don't believe the witness because most witnesses don't even understand the difference between observation and interpretation. So you kind of take it all with a grain of salt, which is why I think that that sample size that you mentioned earlier is so significant. Um, hundreds and hundreds of reports, I think, are necessary to start getting a pretty decent picture of what we're what we're going after. I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I, I kind of feel it's one of the most uninteresting things about cryptozoology, but the the um just because of my my own bias, and yeah, I'm sure you'd say the same, but it, it just in terms of how people actually perform as eyewitnesses, we mm-hmm. we tend to assume, as people interested in cryptozoology, that an eyewitness account. You know, if you read an eyewitness account, you kind of think automatically that you're hearing a description of a photo, but of course, of course, you're not. There is this, you know, substantial amount of research done on the way memory works and the fact that you know we're not we're not accurate uh describers of of what we've seen but then of course you know that is that's the thing that's i feel constantly in the corner of the room in any discussion about cryptozoology and i know what the counter argument to it is you know the fact that well it doesn't that's all very well and good but that doesn't change that you have a bunch of people that have claimed to see the same thing so what we have to remember uh if we go to uh, you know, places where we're not necessarily familiar with the with the culture, or even with the what the creature is meant to be like. We have to remember that you mustn't start out in your mind with a view of what the creature is, and then basically descri- get people to describe things that match your you know vision of what it's like you see this all the time in people that go to tropical africa in quest of makila mbembe and uh you know new guinea in search of the ropen and these kinds of animals they're clearly looking for people uh, they're clearly looking for specific traits that match their view of what the creature's like already and uh, uh, uh that is that's not good for anyone i think so um yeah, you know, I complain all the time about people
0: who write me um, an email or tell me a story and they want my opinion, but actually what they want is my affirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I give them any pushback at all on it, they get very angry at me, very generally speaking. I guess I'm perhaps not very gentle with them. I don't know. <laughs> and, I, and, and, we're, and I think we do the same thing, as you were just saying, you know, going to um, Africa to look for Michele Babembe, We're looking for certain traits. We're looking for affirmation. So we're, we're as guilty as uh, they are, essentially.
1: Yeah, um, are, you uh, you started to talk about um, uh, f- fossil um, hominids, and yeah, we, yeah. we veered away from that, which I'm sure you'd rather not. Uh, oh no, no I, I would love to speak about yeah. that. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct. And you know,
0: and, and along those lines, even this week, I'm sure you caught, uh, I'm sure you saw the article. I don't know if you had a chance to read it or not about the um, the Laetoli prints that were actually discovered before the original, like the, the more famous Laetoli prints um, from site. Uh, the, the famous ones, I think, are site G, and then the. But apparently, site A, um, there were some footprints that were thought perhaps to be from a bear of some sort for a long time, and now they've taken a second look at it, and and now they're thinking, oh, this is probably some sort of hominin of some sort, and a different, perhaps a different species than the hominin who left the footprints at Laetoli site G. If I'm correct about that site G thing, um, yeah which I think is fascinating and very pertinent to our conversation here, um, I think, because I am of the idea that sas you've probably heard me say it before if you listen to this podcast at all, that I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that Sasquatches are a hominin, um, specifically probably something along the lines of a robust australopithecine, a paranthropus. Um, and and when I looked at the article, I said, well, that looks like a pretty decent Sasquatch print. It has that sort of fan-shaped thing that I'm always looking for. And then I'm reading further, and it says, oh yeah, it, it has an inline gait. There's very little straddle. I said, well, where have I heard that before? Um, of course, it's a Sasquatch trait. And the more I read about it, Thinking, oh, well, how hilarious! To me, it's funny. It's like they're they're discovering or they're hypothesizing, I should say, about this hominin, and it has all these uh, gait traits um, of a sasquatch. And I, and I just kind of laughed about things because one of the um, interesting things that I've picked up over the years, and this happens to come from Dr. Meldrum, he pointed out some a, a scientist said this, and I don't remember who it was. Um, uh, an interesting test of a hypothesis is how well it predicts future discoveries in the same field, um, and he applies that to the Patterson-Gimlin film in a number of ways. But I thought this was another excellent, op- another um, example of that. Um, what are your thoughts, if any?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I, I I haven't. You're right. I haven't read the paper, but I'm aware of it. I've seen news articles. I think that what's happened in paleoanthropology um, over the past, I mean, I think, kind of, probably since the late 1990s, does in some ways have quite a few parallels to the cryptozoological um, idea about uh, crypto hominids and like I can remember I was born in the 70s and I, and I remember growing up thinking the uh, well you know the, the main view of um, hominin evolution, or hom- they, at the time they were all just called hominids. Of course, the idea that there were like four species and basically straight line evolution—one turned into another one and went extinct, and then that turned into another one and that one extinct. We had Whereas, single species hypothesis. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, when um, people like Ivan Sanderson developed, um, you know, ideas about how, if you if you're really gonna uh, accept the idea that um the um mystery bigfoot type creatures seen all around the world if you're going to accept the idea that they are that they're real unknown animals we're clearly not seeing one species we're clearly seeing a whole bunch of them we're we're seeing like you know a diversity you know a couple in e- on each continent maybe and um when that was proposed that would have been you know back in the 50s and 60s that would have seemed pretty radical and i don't think it was taken very seriously by uh, those uh, sort of zoologists who you know uh, who read it but um as we've discovered uh, like an increasingly bushy hominin family tree you know at any one time there's there's I don't know, 10 to 15 contemporaneous species uh, in Africa and Asia mostly. Um, yeah, it's like, wow, this this really was a, <laughs> a really interestingly diverse world with numerous different adaptations, numerous different heights and facial shapes and, you know, habitat preferences and so on. It's, it's really interesting that the cryptozoological view is in some ways – paralleling it so i whether that's a whether that's a strength whether that's you know supports the cryptozoological view i mean uh, you know quite a few people have said it lauren coleman has been saying it for a long time but um one of the things that i find really interesting about all the cryptozoological claims is um if the story that the fossil record is showing us is the same story as the one is if it's you know directly linked to the story of Yeren, Almas, Orang Pendek, uh, Bigfoot etc then um the the fossil record clearly isn't telling us the full story because it's the fossil record for hominins is um with, with the ex- with the exception of you know ancient North Americans, um, which don't go back that far, not deep into the Pleistocene, you don't have a story of these animals, you know, moving throughout um, Siberia, say, and then moving across the Bering Land Bridge. You don't have an American story. You don't have a European story that extends beyond about thirty thousand years ago, because that's when Neanderthals kind of go extinct. Um, you don't have an Australasian story. You do have, you know, these. Uh, obviously, you have like diminutive animals, Floresiensis, and whatnot, in Indonesia. Uh, Homo floresiensis, by the way, is not a member of Homo. I know they're still calling it that name, but it's an australopithecine-grade animal. It's yeah, an animal. which
0: which yeah. actually bolsters uh, my my uh, um, my model quite well because m- the problem with my model, be Sasquatch as being an australopithecine or a paranthropus, is that there's no sign of radiation out of Africa until Homo floresiensis showed up. Now, now, now. Along those lines, uh, you're familiar with Homo luzonensis from the Philippines. Um, uh, um, Does Homo luzonensis fall under that same category as being um, archaic, for lack of a better term, like Homo floresiensis does? Or does it show more modern traits, as far as you know?
1: As far as I know, it it does not fall into the same—it doesn't have the same limb proportions. There's a whole bunch of things that make floresiensis— Kind of of the australopithecine grade, and so far as I know, that's not true for Luzonensis. So I haven't, yeah. I haven't read a
0: lot on Luzonensis at, at,
1: so far. Likewise, I don't think there's much to read. But yeah, I, yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah, uh, there was interestingly there 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 was back in the 50s and 60s supposed evidence for an australopithecine in tropical Asia. It was called Australopithecus Prometheus because it was supposedly associated with um, evidence for you know hearths for, for for fire. Um, those fossils were later re-identified. But there is a history of people claiming to find Australopithecines in, in Asia.
0: So, You know, I, uh, I just bought a collection of journal articles and it arrived this week, so I haven't got into it yet. And I bought it solely based on one claim that uh, uh, this anthropologist, and forgive me for not knowing his name, I'm terrible at names, was claiming some sort uh, uh, he was hypothesizing some sort of um, Asian dispersal of early hominins. Um, at the time, and maybe, maybe this is the same gentleman that you're speaking of with, the Australopithecus Prometheus. Um, very interesting. Uh, I'll I'll try to, I'll get into that article hopefully this week. And if I find anything interesting, I will email it to you to kind of catch you up on some stuff. um, Yeah. What he says, but it's an older article though. It's from the eighties. So who knows if it's pertinent anymore or not. So,
1: right. That's the stuff it was published in journal of human evolution and it would have been in the eighties. But, um, yeah, if, if if this is this the same story if the fossils do link up to the uh, you know the modern uh, claimed creatures then yeah we're missing a huge bunch uh, a substantial amount of the story we're missing this you know like american side of the story and, well being a
0: paleontologist in general that's true of any lineage right
1: yeah yeah so this is something that um, is is discussed a lot uh, how complete is the fossil record and this is something that there is no one tidy answer to this. Uh, um, it varies from group to group. So I, you really have to try and restrict it because otherwise, if, you know, broad brush generalizations. I mean, yeah, mammals have a great fossil record. So therefore, therefore, you couldn't have unknown, you know, um, American uh, hominins, you know, you, would be a potential broad brush answer, but it wouldn't be satisfactory because, you know, as soon as you start thinking just of, just of great apes or of any other large group of animals, you easily have like, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years, when members of a lineage are just like lacking entirely. So, um, you know, great apes in particular, you know this, I actually was listening to you talking about it (laughs) quite recently. Yeah. Gorillas and chimps have Terrible fossil records. I got a hilarious joke fossil records. It's like they deliberately excluded themselves from the fossil record as best as best they could. Um, orangutans have a pretty good fossil record, which is kind of surprising given that they are associated with mostly tropical forest. But um, I mean, gorillas are supposed to be like 10 million years old, and there's one claimed fossil, and it's not even definitely a gorilla. It's actually an animal that was described as a hominin, um, Sahel Anthropus, the 2 specimen from Chad. Some experts argue that that is actually an ancient gorilla, but other than that, you got nothing, and then, yeah, chimps, you got a couple of teeth, so... I I do think this would be a case where it seems surprising, but it's certainly not unprecedented. That these animals, these animals are so rare. I mean, when I have discussed it with with other paleontologists, you know, if if Bigfoot's real, their their common retort is, "Well, why don't we have it at you know Ranchella Brea?" Or <laughs> it should, should be yeah, should yeah. be all over the place in that the very rich Pleistocene record of them. Um, Uh, you know, a place to North America. And it's like, yeah, maybe it would, you know, maybe it wouldn't. I mean, has there um, been an effort
0: made? Um, And I, I, because we aren't going to find anything unless we're looking. I mean, I obviously we do find some things when we're not looking sometimes on accident. Um, but you know that right. like I'll, I'll use for example the type specimen of uh, Homo erectus Java Man. Um, it was discovered in Southeast Asia of all places, um, which is surprising in a way. Uh, but if no one's looking for it throughout, say India and in, um, you know Pakistan or not, yeah, I mean Pakistan sure, but like Russia and places like that, what are the chances of finding
1: it? Yeah. I mean, um, I think that the argument has been made that that there's certainly quite a lot of hominin fossils, obviously from, uh, you know, Eastern Eastern Asia, but um, they are, you know, we think we know what kind of animals they are from. They're from, you know, Homo erectus type uh, animals. If you find any hominin remains in North America, they are uh, Homo sapiens. Um, Now, I don't think that the let's say that Bigfoot is real. I don't think it is uh, homo sapiens. I mean, I'm I'm familiar with the argument from some corners that that is a, a, a thing on the cars. I don't think that does. Yeah, well, that does. No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll
0: say it if, you're, if you don't want to. It's ridiculous. <laughs>
1: it, yeah, uh, I think you know it, it, the, the things that have been identified from the North American record and South American record as Homo sapiens. They are Homo sapiens. They're not misidentified uh, Bigfoots. But yeah, you're, um, you're far too kind, Darren. I want <laughs> <like> to. <that.
0: laughs> it, it's that UK politeness coming through. Like, like <laughs> but, people already hate me. I'll say it. It's ridiculous. Okay, fair
1: enough. Good. Yeah. Um, but what? Yeah. When it comes to the Asian stuff, I mean, um, I mean, I kind of think that what we think we understand about okay, so Denisovans are currently total black box. We haven't got a clear what those animals were really like. I mean, we think they were very similar to us, probably in general appearance, and also to Neanderthals. You know, given that we've got evidence for Neanderthal Homo sapiens Denisovan, you know, crossover. Um, th- th- those all the all of those animals probably did. You know, look look very much like us, and I think that moves them away from being, um, you know, potential candidates for crypto hominids. But get outside of that little group, and once you're talking about uh, erectus type animals, I mean, mm, I don't know. I mean. I, I have personally always been more, pr- probably, I think Grover Krantz is probably to blame for this, but I've, I've kind of always leant towards the idea that if uh, Sasquatch and Almas and, you know, Yerens and whatnot, Metes, if they are real things, then they probably are members of the Pongine branch of the hominid family tree, which... Um, That's one of those things that I really hope is true, but I've got absolutely (laughs) no way of backing up. I I don't. I'm not leaning towards the Gigantopithecus um, um, theory that you know uh, Crantz was. uh, There's a bunch of reasons for. I don't think Gigantopithecus was what. Crantz thought it was. Crantz thought it was more of a, you know, hominin-like animal.
0: But um, well, the the, fa- you know, the thing that bothers me about Gigano theory is that well, first of all, we know almost nothing about them. You know, whatever teeth and jaws can say, and that's that, and that's really about it. But um, you know, she uh, w- now that the what is it, the proteonics? Did I say that word right? The the, the yep. protein studies. Um, Squarely place it in the line between Shivapithecus and orangutans. Mm. Well, neither of those animals have brow ridges, and but Sasquatches are uniformly reported brow, and of course that could have arisen separately. I totally understand that, but I don't know. There's little things like that kind of bother me. And um, the and sure, Gigano's right place, right time, right size. I get it. That's a reasonable starting point, um, but w- we lack so much about them, which is why I think, which is why I am not really on that boat. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, But whereas um, the that australopithecine thing, it was actually through the reading Ian Tattersall, who I'm sure you're a, a very, very well aware of. Um, Ian Tattersall was describing um, in one of his books, I think it was Masters of the Planet I was reading, if I remember correctly. He, uh, a lot of it is about australopithecines and how they lived and how they probably looked and uh, behaved and all these sort of things. And um, he was ta- commenting about their gait and how that had to do with their pelvic structure. About how uh, Australopithecines' pelvises um, face upwards as opposed to humans that are their pelvises face forward. Um, Well, and you start looking at some of these purported Sasquatch photographs, and there's a couple that are unpublished, by the way, I wanna point out too. Um, And they have Sasquatches seem to have a slightly pear shaped body about them, including Patty, I might add, from Patterson-Gimlin film. Her hips are a good two or three inches wider than her chest is. Um, and that could be from a pelvic standpoint. And then when you start looking at the cranial shape um, with the zygomatic arches and the possible sagittal crests and whatnot, all those things are clearly present in the robust australopithecines, and, uh, which is why I think that that's a reasonable place to put a couple bucks down on a bet as well, especially if they did radiate out of Africa Head northwards, which would of course be a requirement for crossing the land bridge, and then Bergman's rule took over. You know, and you know, a five foot paranthropus, give it give it eight hundred thousand years, and it could easily be a seven and a half foot Sasquatch.
1: If if I were to uh, have to favor a uh, a given identity, it would it would be the same one. It would be robust Australopithecines, Yeah. Paranthropines. Mm-hmm, so, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and of course, as you know, it's an idea with some history. I mean, it goes back to, I think some of the Russian researchers, um, specifically were drawing, um, you know, superimposing paranthropine skulls over, you know, blown up images of Patty and yeah. find, yeah, yeah, look the, you know, the position of the sagittal crest and whatnot does does match so it's it's a really it's a really intriguing idea and um yeah f- for me part of the appeal of of this of the whole field is the yeah the, the, what, what we call speculative zoology yeah uh, which is which,
0: fun at the very least i think yeah at the very least it's a lot of fun
1: yeah yeah i mean d- d- yeah it's not meant to be in any way an insult or a slight it's like uh like if I always say that even if there's absolutely, you know, nothing like air quotes real, you know, nothing tangible at the bottom of cryptozoology, then, uh, certainly in terms of like how it's been, you know, how things have, have worked in the community, you know, what, what ideas people have explored and, uh, yeah, the sort of, um, uh, the, the psychological basis for like the ideas they come up with uh, that, that alone again is, is fascinating and, and worthy of study. And, and the amount, and the, the, um, how common speculative zoology has been, uh, how influential it's been in, in cryptozoology is not an insignificant, it's a non-trivial point. It's like been there right from the starts.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So um, we've spent, spent a lot of our time so far you know, focusing on the Sasquatch thing, which is kind of my gig, and I can totally see why we do that. Um, as far as the breadth of other animals in cryptozoology, um, as we kind of close up our podcast here, um, what other cryptids do you think that they're m- just maybe something there like some of them are clearly you can just write off right away no big deal but some of them may have some sort of real biological thing behind it um are, are any what are your thoughts there
1: yeah um so i've yeah i've written about you know the pretty wide breadth of uh cryptids and exactly exactly what we include within the subject is, is itself you know a, a topic of debate but um, i will say for example that the uh, so-called mystery big cats that are reported from many places um you know are legit so um in north america i there are good reasons for thinking that people really are seeing uh, you know, pumas in places where they're supposedly not officially present, or the, the infamous Black Panthers. You know, I, 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 I do think that some of those are actually real, what they actually are. You know, are they large jaguarundis? Are they melanistic jaguars or, or melanistic pumas? Um, I do think there's something there. Here in the UK, you know, our top of the list of our mystery um, animals. Uh, is out-of-place uh, so-called mystery big cats, and I'm absolutely convinced that they're a reality.
0: You know, uh, I've seen it, one of those. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I've actually seen a black cat here in America. Um, um, whereabouts? It, it was in Illinois, southern Illinois, and it was clearly a melanistic mountain lion because wow. even though it was dark, dark gray in color, like very, very dark. I thought it was black, but upon f- it was on the side of the road and about 2.30 in the morning and whatever. and I thought it was initially a gr- um you know, a German shepherd, but, uh, it was trotting towards the road Then it started moving parallel. So I got about a five or maybe six, seven second look at this thing. Um, it was a cat. It was a, it was a mountain lion as far as I could tell. And the reason I say that is because mountain lions have a black cap on the end of their tail and also the tips of their ears. And even though this was very, very dark, I thought it was black at first. I could differentiate the, the difference between the coat and the tips of its ears and the tail. So that, those were even blacker, so it must have been a dark dark charcoal gray or something like that. but I did see one of those at one t- at one point so. that is compelling. Have you written that up um yeah yeah I've, 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 i I've believe I've written it up. I feel to dig through my notes, but yeah, I tell the story quite a fair amount too.
1: when I say written up, I mean have you made efforts to get it published anyway?
0: No, no, I have not yeah
1: no. yeah a, a woman did inter-
0: wrote a book about black cats and interviewed me about it, but um yeah so she published it but
1: okay oh that's oh, at least it's on record that's good yeah yeah um anyway go ahead i'm sorry to interrupt but I'd no it's okay it. yeah oh so uh, let me let me just use that to make a real brief point off so when i say if you've written it up you know um oftentimes in th- this again is something that's kind of not practiced i think sufficiently in a lot of cryptozoology if you let's say a naturalist. Um, so, someone who's like a member of a you know natural society or something you know a, a professor you know qualifications if they saw something they were absolutely sure they were confident enough to be able to okay so it's unfortunate they weren't able to get a photo as is normally the case when you see animals very, very briefly but they could at least do a sketch or something then they would write like a sort of a one page you know technical paper I saw this animal, it was in this specific location, if you're able to give it, then they would try and get it published um, in a, you know, a peer-reviewed uh, journal. Um you've got more than enough things to do I'm not trying to give you <laughs> more work but uh, no but I'm always willing to up my game and, and I try to do that not only
0: for myself but also as a model for other bigfooters trying always trying to improve myself cuz people look at me like I'm the expert said no man I'm a learner just like everybody else is yeah. I, I always am uh, accepting uh, of encouragement and um you know and and being pointed in the right direction
1: because that to me sounds compelling enough that that should be in the technical mammalogical literature. And I, I tried getting the same thing done here in the UK with mystery big cats because um, there's uh, – I mean the, the reason – part of the reason I think the um, air quotes mystery big cats are a reality in the USA is because I know of cases where quite skeptical, you know, qualified – Field naturalists, zoologists saw the, saw that the same thing, basically, you know what you've just described, and it's there's this was not just a regular puma seen in the shadows or seen due to poor illumination. It was legitimately like a a truly like dark, you know, dark coated animal, and it's like if if that's that's such a, a I mean, in, 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 and. <laughs> On the one hand, it's not such a bold claim because, of course, we, we know there's so many of these accounts. On the other, you know, to actually be able to actually state it in print and be quite confident about it is, uh, is a big deal. So um, I, I tried here in the UK to get the uh, British big cat um, enthusiasts to – there's there's various like amateur groups here. Tried to get them to better publish um, their stuff, which includes – there's some really poor, you know, photos and bits of film, um, and there's some vocalizations which are, you know, always subject to debate. But there's tracks which have been cast and photographed, and which are definitive and unarguable. There are hairs which have been analysed both um, in terms of gross morphology under the microscope, and also have been subjected subjected to genetic analysis and have been identified as those of non-native cats. And there's loads of. Um, bite marked uh, bones you know broken bones and even you know animals that like deer and sheep that have been killed in characteristically uh, big cat ways and i'm like you've got all this data this is a compelling case you need to like actually compile it get it published in technical papers which is really hard to do it's really hard for I am not a professional scientist. I'm like make my living in other ways. I, I publish technical papers like for fun on the side. It is not fun. It's a horrible job. I hate it. It's a really it's really hard. So for someone who has no experience of like how the technical literature works or how you do actually compile technical papers, I know it's I know it's hard. And I was never able to find the time to do it. And even today, with like decades of this data kicking around, it hasn't been properly published with the exception of one paper that i published with um max blake and colleagues a couple of years ago where we found a uh, taxiderm uh, probably canada canada lynx in mm. a museum collection an animal that was um that was shot here in was in the southwest of, of england And it's like if that if that is in like 1904 mm. or something it's like that animal was shot in the wild in the uk uh, we did have links here prehistorically, but well, or, or interhistoric times, but not for hundreds of years. So finding a shot one in the countryside is a uh, kind of a big deal. And, uh, you know, you get data like that. You absolutely should publish it. So, so yeah, big cats, out of place, big cats. I am uh, very confident are a thing and there is more on them due to be published. Um, hopefully, well, probably next year, actually. Mm-hmm. So, um, and if the other thing, um, this is going back to you asking me what I think is, you know, probably legit. Well, uh, we haven't touched on marine stuff, and I'll just say briefly sure. that we've got every reason to think that there are more large marine animals to be discovered. There are at least a few more. Um, the question is whether any of the uh, so-called sea monsters that have been reported by witnesses, whether they kind of you know will turn out to be. Um, uh, new species and at the moment i don't know because uh um i'm not that confident that that sea monsters as reported by eyewitnesses do actually pertain to unknown species but at the same time i think there are unknown species to find so at least some of the descriptions well it's um, a tough
0: thing to begin with because most of the actual animal is hidden underwater no matter (laughs) what you see (laughs) yeah um but I will say there's been, it a, a, seems, a flurry of new beaked whale discoveries over the last decade or two.
1: Yeah, there's actually been, I mean, within the last two years, there's been like four or five new whale species, two of which are beaked whales, two of which are rorquals, one of which is a dolphin. So, um, yeah, there's always, always, there's like, you know, one or two a year, Um, new whales, new sharks, new particularly big rays, new large cephalopods. So there's always this background, you know, uptick on the graph. Um, There have been a couple of studies done uh, by by myself and other people, Charles Paxton, Michael Woodley, various others. We've published these papers looking at discovery rates over time of large marine animals. And they all indicate that the the curve of the graph still has got a little bit to go before it's, you know, tails off. Mm -hmm, Uh, stops mm -hmm. stops growing um the the kind of the sort of dirty secret to this though is that all of these creatures aren't really you know when we talk about new marine animals we still tend our poster children are still the coelacanth 1936 i think and the megamouth 1976 Now, 1976 that's now a long long time ago <laughs> that's decades and decades ago that's not that's not a recent discovery anymore really yeah. the um and 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 I would say the megamouth was a radically new animal i mean no one had any clue that, that there are no i have checked there are no descriptions in the you know sea monster mysteries of the sea type literature where people describe an animal of that kind there's nothing like it at all it's totally new so these new um, new whales, as in like 2021 whales and, and sharks, they're unfortunately, they're not like that. They're new populations that we've recognized as new thanks to new genetic analyses. Sure, not, like, yeah. like the
0: species of orangutan that was discovered in 2017. We already yeah. knew they were there, just they're genetically different.
1: Exactly, dead right, yeah. yeah. And in fact, people have been saying for years beforehand that the Tapanuli orangutan, by the way, this is a distinct form, it's just... You know, our views on what we call our speciesometer has, uh, you know, has varied over the years. And now, and right now, the fashion is to name that as a new species, but it wouldn't have been 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so there, there's definitely new marine stuff to find. It's just, will do any of these sea monster stories, many of which are just so cool, <laughs> do, do any of yeah. them actually describe these new animals? And unfortunately, I'm doubtful of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: no. What about some rediscovery things like a uh, um, thylacines, for example, or um, I think that'd probably be the poster child right there, thylacines. Yeah. Do yeah. you think yeah. there's any chance those things might be kicking around somewhere?
1: Well, there's there's a there's always a, this is a, another kind of foundational cryptozoological thing. There's a, there's a big difference between whether you think something is like absolutely, legitimately plausible. And whether there's actually ev- any evidence to support it. So I've never been to Tasmania, but I'm reliably told that that Tasmania is unspoiled enough and rugged enough and wild enough that, in theory, if thylacines have stuck around, you know, if they managed to persist beyond the the 1930s, you know, we've got reason for thinking that they were still alive in the, in the 60s. And if you think, and that, that's based on. Um, that's based on field evidence where because you know, when the last one in captivity died in 1936 they didn't know that was the last one they knew they were rare but they still thought don't worry if we need another one for a zoo we can go out in the wild and catch it so you've got all these like formal scientific papers where people in the 1940s 50s and 60s are saying the thylacine is very rare it's one of the rarest mammals around but it's just clinging on. So if in the and there's an actual report from I think it's 1967 where the Zoological Society of London reports the finding of what they regard as a thylacine den. And I, so far as I know, it's legit. I mean, it's a it like it's actual field evidence for the persistence of thylacines a couple of decades after their official extinction. You know, pinning down when an extinction happens is, you know pretty much impossible you never really know that an animal's 100 percent gone mm-hmm. um it's, it's again it's one of these numbers games um so so like on the theory side of things i can kind of buy that yeah maybe thylacines persisted until like you know the late 20th century but on the actual evidence side of things what good evidence is there for it there's um you know if you go through uh, a cropper did it really well in there out of the shadows book and um is it Ian Malcolm's thylacines, bunyips and Bigfoot's is, is this, this some really good. Australia has got like a pretty cool little cryptozoological community. They do a good job of cataloging and, and interpreting a lot of this stuff. And there's hardly any reports that you read it and think, Oh, that comes from a, a good source and is like a reliable, um, you know, that's a, that sounds to me like a good solid report. Instead, they're all really dodgy. They're all like, you know, people saw something running across the road in the middle of the night or something. There's been this um, long-standing argument as to whether there are feral foxes in Tasmania. Apparently, there are not. So all of the... And, and you, know, you know, there's this um, claim about thylacines being present on the Australian mainland. Yes. So, yeah, that arose like mostly to do with a single researcher. That's mostly the result of Rex Gilroy's writings. Mm-hmm. And I won't start talking about him, but he's not a particularly trustworthy researcher. Um, he yeah, like, I've seen
0: some of his Bigfoot or Yowie data, and I've seen no reason to look further.
1: <laughs> Say no more. Um, yeah, totally agree with you on that. Um, yeah, the, the Australian stuff is like, it should be dismissed out of hand. It's almost certainly people like seeing and misinterpreting foxes. It's not clear that's the case for Tasmania, but there isn't strong support, basically, is where I'm going with this. So. Are you familiar with a uh, Gary Opit? Uh, I am, yes, yes. And Gary Opit's weird bushy-tailed, stripy creature seen in um, Queensland. Do you know the one I'm thinking of?
0: I think I do, because uh, I had a great conversation with Gary. I was very impressed with him in a lot of ways. And he said he saw something that doesn't. he has no idea what it is. And when, when Gary says something like that, it, that kind of means something, I think.
1: Yeah, so um, Gary's creature, I think this is from Cape York Peninsula, Queensland. Um it's always included in books in the section about the so-called Queensland tiger, which is not to be confused with the thylacine, which is often called the marsupial tiger or you know Tassie tiger. It's a different creature. Mm-hmm. The um, yeah, the Queensland tiger was supposedly a cat-shaped striped marsupial. Uh, Gary's creature is included in uh, you know chap the chapter on on that, but it's clearly something else it's it's not meant to be this like big cat like tiger creature it's nothing to do with thylacines and his drawing looks pretty good and he's given a pretty good description of what he saw it doesn't match numbats or quolls or you know or any of the possible it's got a kind of marsupial flavor to it (laughs) the way it looks and what he describes but it's like if that's real, <laughs> if that's uh-huh. legit, it looks plausible enough for you to think that that's got to be something else that's just not known. But uh, yeah, so I, I'm quite impressed with that. But I really would like there to be um, other reports of exactly the same thing, and I'm, I'm not aware of them. So
0: yeah, I found Gary to be fascinating. I spent, I had an opportunity to spend an afternoon with him one day, and um, he's impossible to go hiking with. You know, we're, we're trying to get somewhere literally a thousand yards away and it, it took forever because every six or seven steps he goes oh look at this and he bends down and picks up a plant and tells you the natural history of it and <laughs> how it was used by the indigenous people and what animals use it and they say okay well we got to get going and ten steps later he does the same thing he's just such yeah. a fountain of information that what a
1: what a delightful human being so yeah best kind of naturalist but also yeah I, I get, I get that would be frustrating
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I learned so much we didn't get a lot of filming done but I learned so much from him
1: so some of the Yowie stuff is so so spookily weird. It's it's like of of all the of all the creatures that you know I would regard as it, if I were to arrange mystery creatures, you know, cryptids on a sort of scale, the yowie would be, you know, towards the very very <laughs> unlikely to be true end of the scale and yet you do have these um accounts and even photos, you know, thermal images and so on from places like the Blue Mountains where it's like I just can't really explain that. I don't know what yeah, that, that is. That <laughs> new thermal
0: stuff from this year was quite
1: impressive. It's yeah, very it was quite odd. impressive. Very. Odd, yeah, because yeah.
0: some of the other footage, you know, it's not much to look at, honestly. You know, the Piper film, etc. But uh, but that new stuff is pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. And I work a lot with thermal imagers, so I mean, it probably means a little bit more to me than your average Joe. Um, but I'm pretty impressed with that stuff. Um, yeah, I was actually pretty impressed with Australia in general when I went and I didn't even I wasn't even aware that they reported the they report two kinds of hom- hominoids there, a big one and a small one. And I thought, yeah. Oh well, juveniles, of course. And they go, No, no, no. These are small ones. They max out at like four or five feet tall.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know Helian Cropper's uh, book that the Yowie, because they've got yes, Yeah 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 th- their last it's an chapters book. yeah
0: I thought I read it carefully but I apparently did not because after I came <laughs> back from Australia I, I went and grabbed it and reread it and go oh, it was right here in front of me this yeah. entire time it's a good book. Well, Darren, we're, we're just about out of time here, and I want to thank you so much for coming on. And I, I just found the conversation to be informative and, and just fun. I, I love being a science nerd. I mean, you're a scientist, but I'm a science nerd, so I really enjoy kind of playing in the big leagues and having conversations with people who know far more than I do because I love to learn more than anything else. And I just so appreciate you setting aside a little bit of time because you're on a different continent. It's not always easy to get together with people for a podcast. And I just, I know this isn't exactly easy and it's late where you are. So again, thank you so much. I'm sorry Bobo couldn't be here. And I just absolutely enjoyed our conversation.
1: That was great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Real fun to talk to you. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, Darren. And, I, and uh, hopefully I can speak to you soon about something, some amazing piece of evidence that I have that I need your input on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I look forward
0: to it. <laughs> all right, Darren, you take it easy. Cheers. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, all right. Gators. There you have it. Um, Darren Nash from the UK, um, he, a science writer and paleo zoologist. Check out his podcast he does with John Conway. It's called the Tetrapod Zoology uh, Podcast. He has a blog too. You can read it on tetzoo.com. I initially became acquainted with Darren over Twitter, but uh, I read his book. It's called Hunting Monsters, Cryptozoology and the Reality Behind the Myths, where he kind of goes through and um, and says, well, this evidence isn't good enough. This evidence isn't good enough. Um, and. Check out out his writing. His writing is is fantastic. It is well-researched. He's not one of these skeptics or scofftics, as I call them, that is not well acquainted with the evidence. He he drops the important names. He he is critical of the evidence that is put out there. And I think as a community who is advocating for scientific acceptance of whatever our sacred cow is, Bigfoot or whatever it is, um, we have to pay attention to the skeptics and especially the scientifically qualified skeptics because that is the bar that we all have to rise to. We can't sit in our laurels and complain that the scientists are ignoring all of this if we are not doing a good enough job. And so read the skeptical literature, um, and just realize that that's what we have to climb. Those are the heights to which we have to climb. So again, check out his book if you can, um, check out his writing. He's on Twitter. He's quite active over there. There's always something fun and interesting happening in paleontology that he's talking about. Um, and man, I, I had really had a good time with this con with this conversation and I hope you also enjoyed listening to it despite the fact that Boba was not here. Um, but he's not here hopefully he'll be back next week and be done with his obligations for a little while and until then everybody keep you swatchy as Bubba would say thanks for listening to this week's episode of bigfoot and beyond if you liked what you heard please rate and review us on itunes